Hello and welcome to News Ads. Coming to you live from the BBC World Service Studios in London, I'm Tim Franks. In a moment, Germany warns its companies and its citizens, think very carefully before you go to Turkey. We'll hear how that's gone down in Turkey. Not well is the short version. And get reaction from a senior German businessman. Also today, a rare insight into life in the self-declared caliphate. The wife of an IS fighter describes what it's been like for women in the Syrian city of Raqqa. What they did with them, they took off all their clothes and they brought a doctor. This was how they knew if the women were a virgin or not. They put the married women in one house and the virgins in another house. That report from Raqqa in 15 minutes. First, though, I'm going to tell you a couple of things you already know that Turkey is an important member of NATO, the Western Military Alliance, and that Turkey has long been a candidate to join the European Union. The reason both these facts are worth underlining is the warning today from the German government to its citizens and its companies, should they go to Turkey, that it's a country where they now risk what Berlin describes as arbitrary arrest as the rule of law is eroded. Ibrahim Kalin, a spokesman for the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, said that those statements were unacceptable. This is being disrespectful against the Turkish judiciary. This is being disrespectful against a country such as Turkey that will not share its independence and sovereignty with anyone. And we strongly condemn statements saying German citizens coming to Turkey are not safe and that German companies coming to Turkey have concerns. In a moment, we'll hear what a senior German business figure makes of it. First to the BBC's Selin Girit in Istanbul. What's fueled this latest souring of relations? The latest crisis has erupted because of the arrest of six human rights activists, including a German national. But that was the latest in a series of crises, as you have said. Actually, the relations between Turkey and Germany uh, has been resembling a broken marriage, especially in the last year, if we can put it as such. Because first there was the... uh, satire poem crisis written by a German comedian, which President Erdogan uh, did not take very lightly. He was then the prime minister and he took the issue to the court. The case was then dropped, but it was followed by another crisis about the use of the, about the Injurlik Air Base, uh, which is used by the German troops as well when Ankara didn't allow German politicians to visit their soldiers there. Then Germany didn't allow Turkish politicians to hold rallies in their country prior to the referendum in Turkey. The list goes on when we're talking about the spat between Turkey and Germany. Uh, And, of course, we need to mention uh, the detention of the uh, German-Turkish dual national uh, journalist, Deniz Yücel, which has been a serious uh, point of crisis between the two countries as well. And just briefly for the time being, Selin, how important is German investment, German tourism to the Turkish economy? It is very important. Germany is Turkey's top export destination. It has been last year buying uh, $14 worth of Turkish goods, uh, Germany did. And uh, it was also the second biggest source of Turkish imports, um, valuing over $20 billion, only seconded uh, to China. 
Uh, and Turkish tourism uh, is very dependent on uh, German tourists coming in as well. Last year, the number of tourists coming into Turkey had already uh, dropped drastically because of the uh, spat of explosions, terror attacks that had taken place. And considering tourism sector contributes about $30 billion uh, to Turkish economy, that bill that Turkey could face because of deterioration of its relations with Germany, that bill could be really huge. Selin, thank you. Well, Volker Trier is the head of foreign trade at the Association of German Chambers of Commerce and Industry. What did he make of the intervention today from the German Foreign Minister, Sigmar Gabriel? On the one hand, he gave a clear signal to Turkey that we are upset about this new list of companies with the accusation that they are supporting terrorism in in Turkey, that this is a a red line. And on the other hand, that he sent the signal that Turkey, of course, is an important partner for German politics, but also for German business uh, at the same time. So Turkey has come out with this list of getting on for 70 German companies, some of them very big ones, according to reports like BASF and Daimler, saying that they uh, support the Gulen movement, which uh, the Turkish government calls a a terrorist outfit. Just in terms of that, let me ask you, as a senior member of the Association of German Chambers of Commerce and Industry, is there any evidence that they have supported the Gulen movement? We don't have any evidence, and it seems to us that it's arbitrary what is happening right now. Maybe there is an evidence like this that some employees have attended maybe a course because the Gulen movement, as far as I'm informed, has many institutes, learning institutes for qualifications uh, in, in the whole countryside of Turkey. And maybe this is a kind of an evidence for the Turkish authorities. But uh, I can't recognize that there is really substantial evidence of supporting terrorism if you do it in a bit more objective way. So let me ask you this. Is Mr Gabriel right to warn German companies that it's a bad idea to invest in a country, Turkey, where, in his opinion, there is no rule of law? Is that advice that you would give, as the head of foreign trade at the German Chambers of Commerce, that you would give a company that came to you? Since the coup attempt last year, June last year, in Turkey, in Istanbul and in Ankara, there is a growing concern among German business people having invested in Turkey and doing business with their Turkish partners due to the following purchase and and the harsh crackdown done by the Turkish authorities under the leadership of uh, President Erdogan. This but growing mis- concern to the point where you think people should not take the risk? People have to be aware of the risk, and the risk is right now that legal certainty, that predictability of legal decisions and actions are at least under threat or are undermined. I don't know if you yourself have much contact with the Turkish authorities, but are there any attempts from from your end to try and get reassurances? 
we have different experiences. Uh, one experience is that the Turkish authorities in Turkey are very keen on having investors in their countries and making also some some charming arguments and some charming actions uh, towards the investors coming from abroad, especially also to German ones. On the other hand, it seems to us that businesses are more or less a kind of an application of an instrument, or we are instrumentalized in a political dispute. So it seems to us that we are not the first goal of the Turkish authorities, but we are the instrument. That was Volker Trier, head of uh, foreign trade at the Association of German Chambers of Commerce and Industry. We can head back to Istanbul and our correspondent, Selin Gidit. Um, Selin, it, it sounds as if uh, there is going to be a continuing downturn in German uh, trade and tourism with Turkey. Um, could Turkey hit back perhaps by suspending its deal with the rest of the European Union about stopping migrants? Well, that has been a threat uh, President Erdogan has used every now and then. He has warned that he would let hundreds of thousands of migrants travel on to Europe if he was pushed further or if uh, the EU or Germany or Netherlands, whoever the crisis is with, did not concede, take a step back. But that hasn't happened until now. But uh, if the crisis deepens, the shaky EU-Turkey deal to halt the migrant flow uh, could even become more fragile. The BBC's Selen Girit talking to me from Istanbul. O.J. Simpson, the disgraced former American footballer and actor, has been granted parole. The news happened uh, shortly before we came on air. He's to be released from prison a little bit later on uh, this year after serving almost nine years behind bars. A four-member panel in the U.S. state of Nevada each voted for parole. Mr. Simpson, I do vote to grant parole when eligible. And that will be necessary. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. O.J. Simpson thanking the panel via a video link from his jail. This came at the end of a uh, public hearing broadcast, as is uh, the want in the United States on the TV networks. The BBC's James Cook has been uh, watching the case How did O.J. Simpson manage to convince the parole board? He convinced them, I suppose, on the basis of his behaviour during these nine years in prison because, as the parole board said, when they announced their their judgement that he could be released on parole as early as the 1st of October, you have complied with the rules of the prison. You have no prior conviction of criminal activity. That's one that we we famously or infamously, depending on your point of view, knew already. And you were a low risk to re-offend. And Simpson himself appeared talking to the parole board by video link from the Lovelock Correctional Centre, a couple of hours away from where the parole board was sitting in Carson City, up in the high desert, uh, and said that I've done my time. I believe in the jury system. He said, I've spent a conflict-free life. Uh, which, uh, you know, depending on your view of O.J. Simpson, and only 7% of Americans in one recent opinion poll uh, suggested that they thought he was not guilty, those comments may raise some eyebrows. Well, and you were talking about the uh, snort of disbelief among some when he said, you know, um, I, I haven't been involved in trouble in the in the past. He, yeah. he, this goes back to his acquittal for a double murder in 95. Tell us 
will remind of, us about that. Of Well, indeed. I mean, you know, listeners, m- people may not remember. I mean, some people may not well not have been born at the time. But at the time, as you and I will remember, being slightly older, it, it was a sensation. He, he was accused of the murders of his wife, Nicole, his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ron Goldman. Uh, the trial was a sensation. It was televised across the United States and in many places across the world as well. Uh, and he was acquitted. Uh, he was, though, later found responsible for those killings in a civil case in order to pay millions in damages to the families involved. So he's had a, he's had a, you know, a, a checkered history of results in the legal system, but the one that mattered most to him, the criminal trial, he, he was uh, acquitted with millions and millions watching. And uh, he's not going to get out immediately? October the 1st is the first date on which he can be released, and I'm sure he's hoping that he will be freed on that day. The BBC's James Cook with uh, the news that broke shortly before we came on air that OJ Simpson has been granted parole. You can get plenty more on this on our website, bbc.com forward slash news. Coming up on the programme, the Deputy Mayor of Paris tells us the city is struggling to cope with the number of migrants. We cannot handle it by ourselves in Paris. What's going on now, today, this week, this summer? We cannot wait for a biannual plan for 2018-2019. We need urgent measures. That report in 30 minutes. Uh, headlines at the moment. The US Justice Department says it's shut down the biggest criminal marketplace on the internet, the dark website Alpha Bay. We'll have more on that in a, just over 10 minutes. Uh, as we've been hearing, Turkey has told Germany it will not accept threats or blackmail after Berlin outlined a tough response to the arrest of human rights activists. And the former American footballer and actor O.J. Simpson has been granted parole after serving nine years for armed robbery. This is News Hour, live from the BBC World Service. To Syria now. US officials say that they're going to stop the covert programme run by the CIA to train and equip rebel groups in the country. One of the officials, quoted across American media outlets, said that the decision was taken in order to improve relations with Russia. At the same time, the US is also reported to be sending more military hardware to the coalition of forces trying to drive the self-proclaimed Islamic State group out of its Syrian stronghold of Raqqa. With the prospect of the city falling to a coalition of Kurds and Syrian Arabs, some residents are celebrating, others are far less certain about their future. The BBC's Gabriel Gatehouse has been to the front lines to meet the women who have been fighting IS, as well as meeting those women who've lived under IS rule. 50 kilometres north of Raqqa, there's a large camp for people fleeing the fighting. Until recently, all of these people lived under the harsh regime of Islamic State, not all against their will. One corner of the camp is reserved for the wives and children of IS fighters. Here, we get a glimpse of a sisterhood of a more sinister kind. We spent time with the sisters. They didn't like anything we did and kept screaming at my children and me. That's Noor. The sisters she refers to are other IS widows. She's 20 years old and from Lebanon. She came to the caliphate with her husband, a jihadi. 
When he was killed, she was housed in a dormitory for fighters' widows, whose lives were strictly controlled. I spent five months at a guest house. It was better there, and they taught us the Quran and Sharia law. But the prince there controlled us. He was controlling me as if he were my husband. He would say to me that it is forbidden to be outside the guest house. To better her situation, Noor married again, a Tunisian. As the wife of a foreign fighter, she was in a relatively privileged position. There were many others, especially Yazidis, whose fates were much darker. Women captured and sold between the fighters as sex slaves. What they did with them, they took off all their clothes and they brought a doctor. This was how they knew if the women were a virgin or not. He asked them to take off their clothes. They put the married women in one house and the virgins in another house. And in the Yazidi town of Sinjar, the fighters took the women they liked. They came to view them fully naked. It was normal for them to simply say, I like this one, I'll take her, and then indeed take her. These sex slaves are a feature of life in Islamic State. Noor observed all of this, apparently without any sense of solidarity, empathy or shame. Meanwhile, the Syrian Democratic Forces are closing in on the centre of Raqqa. Commander Sonhuin and her units are on the Western Front. It's a tight squeeze inside a homemade armoured truck with a couple of her fighters driving towards the centre of Raqqa. Sonhuin is a Kurdish military commander. She's from the city of Kobani, 150 kilometres north of Raqqa, for the Kurds, the fight against IS is part of a wider struggle for a long-held dream of self-determination. But for Son Huin, the youngest daughter of 11 children in a conservative society, this battle is also a social revolution, and it's personal. I used to wonder as a child already, why are men always more important than women? In this war, we have the chance to show that we are human too and able to do everything in our power to build a new world here. Defeating IS is not only a military goal. We will liberate Raqqa, yes. But the most important battle is that over beliefs, views and attitudes. Today, Son Huin is in command of around a thousand fighters on the Raqqa front lines. I think that it's like a kick in the teeth for them that women dare to rise up. That's Kimmy Taylor, one of the fighters in Son Huin's unit. She's a former math student from Blackburn in the north of England. Not only are we speaking for ourselves, but we're fighting against them and we're winning against them. I think it's hilarious, like... Kimmy Taylor, ending that report from Gabriel Gatehouse in Raqqa. And you can hear more about the women fighting IS as well as those who have lived under IS rule uh, on assignment here on the BBC World Service. Our lead story this time last week was the death of the Chinese dissident Liu Xiaobo, a convicted criminal as far as the authorities in Beijing are concerned, a prisoner of conscience and Nobel Peace Prize laureate, as far as his supporters worldwide maintain. 
Today, we're going to pick up on that story with our regular China news desk from the BBC's Beijing Bureau and our correspondent, John Sudworth. The ongoing story of Liu Xiaobo, China's Nobel Peace Prize winning dissident who died from liver cancer last week while still serving an 11-year prison sentence. Attention has now turned to the fate of his wife, Liu Xia, a woman who has already endured many long years of unofficial house arrest, despite never herself having been accused of any crime. A week on from her husband's death, that does not appear to have changed. When our BBC team tried to visit her home today, we were met by security guards, some in plain clothes. They told us in no uncertain terms to leave. Despite assurances that Liu Xia is a free woman, we can't even get past the front entrance. Liu Xiaobo was given his 11-year sentence for being one of the key authors of a manifesto calling for democratic reform. To anyone living under more liberal political systems, the document reads like a measured and uncontroversial appeal for the most basic of freedoms, a government bound by a constitution and an independent judiciary. But for the Chinese Communist Party, that kind of thing, of course, is simply beyond the pale, and the party has been managing or should I say blocking, the news of Liu Xiaobo's death during a year in which the political stakes could not be higher. This autumn, it will hold its party congress, an event that only comes around once every five years and during which the top leadership is reshuffled. There are signs, too, that China is tightening even further its control over the Internet, a sure sign, some observers suggest, that we are entering a sensitive political period. But back to Liu Xiaobo's wife. Given the current climate, it seems unlikely that China will heed the British Foreign Secretary's call to lift the restrictions on Liu Xia. Her friends, like the Beijing-based activist Hu Jia, says she presents too much of a threat. Now, Liu Xiaobo has passed away, but Liu Xia was with him for his last 37 days. In these 37 days, she has heard Liu Xiaobo's dying words, his wishes and his thoughts. The Chinese Communist Party doesn't want the world to know the dying words of this Nobel Peace Prize laureate. Mr Hu says he believes that despite our attempt to reach Liu Xia's home today, she is in fact not there. He says that she's fallen foul of a tactic often used by the Chinese security services, keen to get someone out of the way for a while. She's been taken, he told us, on a forced holiday to the southwestern province of Yunnan. The BBC's John Sudworth with the idea of a forced holiday. He was uh, giving us a China desk from Beijing. This is NewsHour. Next on NewsHour, we'll be reflecting on the recapture of Mosul by Iraqi forces with the uh, Iraqi ambassador in the United States. First, business news, and it's a murky corner of international business we're heading to because two of the largest marketplaces on what's called the dark web have been shut down following a long-running investigation by international law enforcement. The Alphabay and Hansa sites have been associated with the trade in illicit items such as drugs, weapons, malware and stolen data. 
Dave Lee is the BBC's technology correspondent in San Francisco. First, what is the dark web? The dark web is a kind of alternative internet, if you like, whereas compared to when you go onto the normal web, where you just log onto your computer, you go onto a browser, you visit, visit websites, the dark web is, makes it much harder to be traced because it anonymizes your activity. So on the normal web, you can have your location tracks if, you, if, if needs be. People can generally find out what you're doing if you're up to no good. On the dark web, it's much harder to do that, which is why the dark web and services that enable access to the dark web are popular with many people, but particularly criminals. Tell us what the law enforcement authorities managed to do with these two websites. Well, they've shut them down in the first instance. Two websites, one called Alpha Bay, which was enormous, uh, had around 200,000 users, was pulling in around a billion dollars a year in revenue, which is massive for that kind of operation. And then there's another site called Hansa, which was slightly smaller, but still very, very significant. And what the authorities were able to do is almost by tracking a human error, I guess you could say, mistakes that were made by the administrators or alleged administrators of these websites, they were able to tie what they were doing on the web with things in the real world to find out their identities and to arrest them and to seize these websites and to shut down the operation. What's particularly interesting about this is that the authorities had infiltrated both sites at almost the same time, but they only closed Alpha Bay in order to direct users of that site to the other site in order to scoop up the information about who was using the second site. So it's kind of a, an ambush, if you like, because they knew that users would go from one service to the other, thinking the other one hadn't been infiltrated when in fact it had. So this is a, a major gain in, in inviting this kind of activity online. But they do acknowledge that as soon as you close some of these sites, new ones do appear and tend to appear quite quickly. Well, I presume the weak point in all this is, you know, after you've gone on the dark web, when you've ordered your guns or your whatever and you ask for it to be posted to your house, it's at that point, presumably, that it becomes easier for the authorities to infiltrate. It's easier for the authorities to get at people that are having these things delivered because, obviously, if you have a company that's delivering this that checks it or there's you know various import checks and so on, that's where that can show up. But really, the real price here for authorities isn't the people that are having an amount of drugs delivered, a small amount of drugs delivered, most likely. And what they're really trying to do is find the people that are behind these websites, and that's where most of their resourcing efforts go to because they realise that for many of the people that use these sites to buy drugs, their alternative is to simply buy them in the physical world or go for different sites. Dave Lee, the BBC's technology correspondent, speaking to me from San Francisco. This is NewsHour, live from the BBC World Service in London. I'm Tim Franks. Ten days ago, the Iraqi Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi announced his country's second city, Mosul, liberated from the three-year-long grip of the Islamic State group. But the struggle for that ravaged city and for the country has a huge way to go. In Mosul itself, the figures are fearsome. Perhaps 40,000 civilians dead, getting on for a million displaced. Maybe 90% of the city smashed. And the question remains what future lies ahead for a city with a Sunni majority population under the governance of a Shia-dominated central government and Shia-dominated army and militias. Farid Yassin is Iraq's ambassador to the United States. Uh, the uh, victory in Mosul is no small thing, but it was achieved at a very, very high price, not only in the cost of civilian lives and the destruction of the infrastructure, this much, much of the city, but also in the lives of 
thousands of volunteers and soldiers who went from their cities in the south, in the middle of the country, and volunteered to go and fight to liberate Mosul. You mentioned the fact that we've been in a war for a long time. To me, uh, as an Iraqi, the real war actually began in 2014 because it galvanized all Iraqis to fight for Iraq. And this is what we're doing right now with, as, as you can see, uh, a measure of success. Well, it's interesting now, that, forgive me for interrupting, that you head back to 2014, because since then, when places have been freed from the grip of Islamic State, I'm thinking, for example, of Tikrit back in 2015. That was another Sunni-dominated city. There was vengeance meted out by Shia militias. There's still, from what I understand, a fear from many of the uh, Sunni majority displaced population about even going back to their city. So the war that that has been prosecuted has, has not been prosecuted particularly effectively. Well, look, you prosecute the war you can. Uh, it's it's not an easy thing to fight ISIS. ISIS has been the most violent terrorist organization to, to see the face of the earth. Uh, and and what, what you're saying is actually belied by the fact that in Mosul, as in many other cities, uh, civilians have been welcoming the Iraqi army who've been literally freeing them from being prisoners and human hostages of ISIS. Some some certainly have, but but, but we've also had plenty of reports of people saying that they're terrified about what will happen now. I'll actually get there. I'll actually get there. You mentioned Tikrit earlier. Well, you you may want to know that about a million people have returned to Anbar province, and I think the population of Tikrit is back, and these are United Nations figures, more than 90% um, um, returnees. As to the excesses that you've talked about, they certainly do not represent the will or the strategy of the Iraqi government nor the Iraqi armed forces. And we are actively trying to document these and legal action will be taken to prosecute those responsible. I just wonder, in northern Iraq, though, even if somehow you do manage to uh, assuage the concerns and also the terrible physical needs of the of the population, the, the Sunni majority population in Mosul. I mean, the next thing that you've you've got on the books is this referendum by the Kurds who have been fighting hard against uh, part of the coalition against the Islamic State group. Uh, they're going to be holding this referendum for independence in September, and that could be the next cause of destabilization in the country, couldn't it? Well, I personally don't think it's a good idea, and in fact, it's far far from being unanimous amongst even the, even the Kurds in Iraq. Yeah, but um, the chances are is that they'll vote yes. Yeah, well, even if they held it, I mean, everybody will know what the result is. But I mean, as as I'll tell you, uh, the position of the Iraqi government is this is something that has to go through the premises of the Iraqi constitution. May I remind you that the uh, actually the first referendum held in the area was held by the British in the early 20s uh, to decide whether uh, Mosul and the area surrounding it should join Iraq or should stay in within within Turkey. And overwhelmingly, people voted to join Iraq. And the second referendum was held in 2004, early 2005, late 2004, on the Iraqi constitution, which was voted overwhelmingly uh, for by the uh, inhabitants of uh, the Kurdish provinces of Iraq. Um, so I, I think it, it behooves us to, to see what this constitution says with regard to this referendum. That was Iraq's ambassador to the United States, Farik Yassin.
Six months ago, this happened. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. That I will The 45th President of the United States being sworn into office. All new leaders promise rapid action. Mr Trump, President Trump, as he now was, promised not just a whole new vision, as he put it, but a whole new way of doing things. The businessman who'd get things done, drain the swamp, close the deal. So, how has he done six months on, and where's he heading? We brought together Callum Borchers, a reporter with the Washington Post newspaper, which has been a frequent critic of the president, and first John Gizzi, chief political columnist and White House correspondent for the conservative website Newsmax. What are the highlights of the presidency so far? I can say these are the most exciting six months I have covered in the beginning of a president's administration, bar all. And I go back to Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. As for memorable moments, I'd have to say the high point of the infant Trump administration was the president's State of the Union address when he talked about reaching out to people who disagree with him, on issues ranging from taxes to health care, and uh, did so in a very warm way. Even critics of the 45th president said it was the best speech he ever gave. And then over the weekend, he went downhill, charging that his predecessor had bugged him, and within a short time, we were back to the rancor. If he could get back to the spirit of the State of the Union, we might be on a pretty good course. Callum Borchers, would you alight upon a high point? I think that the administration would certainly point to the uh, successful nomination and confirmation of Neil Gorsuch as uh, a Supreme Court justice as one of the highlights. Um, And I think that you also look at uh, other markers that are encouraging, such as the uh, stock market uh, performing very well, consumer confidence being up. I think those are some of the uh, the high points as well. Um, but I have to concur with, with John that uh, the president does have a tendency to trample on his own good headlines. You have uh, these sort of high moments. He, he had a pretty good first foreign trip as well. It was a period, for example, of nine days where he wasn't really on Twitter a lot, seemingly didn't have a whole lot of time for it, um, and sort of stayed out of trouble. Has he defined your expectations, John Gizzi? Not really. Remember something. This is the first president of the United States who has never held elective or appointive office. People wanted an outsider in the presidency, just as the French voters wanted an outsider in Emmanuel Macron. And the element of unpredictability rises dramatically when there is no lodestar of a past record or ideology to judge someone. So I can't say whether he's met my expectations or not. What I expected was a leap into the unknown, and I felt that was certainly going to be the case on foreign policy. It's the case on a lot of other policies. Callum, has he changed America, either for the better or for the worse? Probably some of both. You know, I think that the the race uh, itself was uh, a, a valuable in a lot of ways exercise in 
kind of understanding that there is a segment of uh, the electorate, especially on the Republican side, that had felt disenfranchised for uh, a number of election cycles and uh, suddenly came out in force for a candidate that uh, really inspired them. So I think that that is uh, certainly valuable to the democratic process. I think that one of the ways um, that perhaps he is changing America for the worse is that uh, we have seen sort of a slow erosion in recent months of uh, press access. Uh, I think that uh, John has experienced it firsthand, probably more than I, as far as the uh, the daily press briefings go, which have increasingly gotten uh, shorter. They are uh, almost always off camera these days. The White House hasn't gone on camera since the end of June. Callum, does it really matter in the greater scheme of things? Well, it's a good question. I think that uh, there's sort of a couple layers to it, right? So on, on the one hand, you look at the reporting that uh, happens outside of the briefing room, right? And you say, well, you don't need to have those daily Q&As perhaps, or maybe don't have them on camera to continue doing that. For example, you look at uh, our reporting uh, on Michael Flynn uh, back in February, which eventually led to uh, his resignation. I think that most folks would look at that and say, okay, that, that's a valuable thing. Without the, the press, perhaps we would still have Michael Flynn as the national security advisor. Without the New York Times, perhaps uh, we wouldn't know anything about Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting um, with this Russian attorney uh, that happened last year. Well, I know this, that when I'm in the Beltway, the Russia thing is tantamount to a major policy discussion. Why is it that a country whose interests are hostile to the U.S. has its leaders be so convivial and uh, an apparent uh, discussion between the president's own family and a Russian attorney during a campaign, which was unheard of and unprecedented. Now, when one goes out to the rest of the country, remember something. Uh, Whatever happens with Russia is of little concern to a public that wants to have a strong economy, a good health care plan, Uh, a good tax plan for the future. These are the things people talk about throughout the country. John, a quick question to end. Um, What are we going to be saying perhaps in 18 months' time as we approach the midterm elections? Let me look at how the stock market is doing at that point and also if he gets a second appointment to the Supreme Court. There's probably as much interest in that in the United States as there is in Britain over who was going to be the 13th Doctor Who. Uh, If those things occur, I would say his base will be rallied and people will say they are satisfied with him. Foreign policy will be less of an issue, but it's still important. Callum, the same question to you. I would just add perhaps to John's list of factors to keep an eye on whether there is uh, tangible progress on health care and also the border wall. I think that those are two core planks or or two uh, really important things that the president ran on. And I think especially uh, for congressional Republicans who have campaigned, I think, for four straight elections now on repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act, um, they're going to have a hard time answering for an inability when they control both houses of Congress and the White House uh, to not get that done in two years. And so I think that is probably the, the biggest thing that I am watching as far as seeing how 2018 will play out. Callum Borchers from The Washington Post. I was also hearing from John Gizzy. Uh, he's White House correspondent for the conservative website Newsmax. 
If you have views on uh, what the Trump presidency has achieved so far, or indeed uh, the things that you think that maybe we ought to be looking at uh, concerning the White House, do get in touch. At BBC NewsHour is the programme Twitter handle. At BBC Tim Franks is mine. A reminder of our top story here on NewsHour. Germany has warned of the dangers of travelling to and investing in Turkey. As a row over the arrest of human rights activists grows. The head of foreign trade at Germany's Chambers of Commerce and Industry, Volker Trier, told this programme both sides were using the business community to try to exert pressure. It seems to us that businesses are more or less a kind of an application of an instrument, or we are instrumentalised in a political dispute. Other headline stories we've been looking at. The US Justice Department says it's shut down the biggest criminal marketplace on the internet, the dark website Alphabay. The former American footballer and activist OJ Simpson has been granted parole after serving nine years for armed robbery. You're with the BBC World Service and live from London, this is NewsHour with me, Tim Franks. France, like many European countries, is very keen to stop the flow of migrants onto its territory. It's tightening controls at the border, but many people do still get through to apply for asylum. In Paris, the mayor has called for more national government help as the streets fill with refugees living rough. Others head for Calais on the northern coast, still determined to make it to the United Kingdom. Charities and non-governmental agencies are trying to persuade those people to stay in France. But many risk their lives each night in an effort to make the crossing. Matthew Price has been following the route migrants take. I'm on one of the roads from the Italian town of Ventimiglia towards the French border, passing through a series of tunnels under the hills here. And there are electronic traffic displays along the way warning you of pedestrians along the route. The pedestrians they're talking about are the migrants who make their way along these roads to try to get to France. Bonjour. At the frontier, there's a police checkpoint. Europe's open border policy doesn't look very open here. Just checking the boot here as well. They're making sure no one is helping migrants to cross into France. Okay, so he's checked our boot, but looks like they pulled over someone here who has been bringing someone across. And yep, they've sent him and the car that was carrying him, the driver of it, back into Italy. He's not got across today. Nestled in the hills just beyond the border, among the olive trees and next to a shepherd's hut, you find some tents and a large number of people sitting nearby under an awning. There are around 60 migrants, now asylum seekers, living here on land owned by Cédric Hérault. He says it's not a problem that he went looking for, it's one that found him and he questions what sort of a situation it is when you've got police in their helicopters chasing down black people in the hills of France. 
We're just asking some of the men here how long it took them to get from Ventimiglia to this camp in France. So it goes right the way from somebody who managed to get across in just two days to others who took a full four months. There's a man who tried 19 times to get across the border. Another one who tried 24 times. 24 times. 24 times, yeah. He really wanted to come. There's a man here who's saying that he just wants to get to Paris because he's got this idea in his mind that he's going to take photographs of the Eiffel Tower. Paris is becoming something of a hot spot, and not just for the tourists taking their photos at the Eiffel Tower. The Porte de la Chapelle metro station periodically becomes a squatter camp. The police cleared migrants away from the area just a few days ago, but now officials say around a 1,000 are back on the streets. The shelters are full. We cannot handle it by ourselves in Paris. That's not a campaigner. It's the deputy mayor of Paris, Patrick Klugman. His city is struggling. The Prime Minister last week announced a series of new measures, cutting the time it takes to process asylum claims, systematically, as he put it, deporting so-called economic migrants and building more shelters to house refugees next year and the year after. Monsieur Klugman says it's not enough. What's going on now, today, this week, this summer? We cannot wait for a biannual plan for 2018-2019. We need urgent measures. Out of the tens of thousands of migrants arriving on the southern shores of Europe this year, only a relatively small proportion make it as far as here, Calais. In a warehouse on the outskirts of the city, a group of volunteers prepare food to hand out to the migrants living here. A year ago, the camp that became known as the Jungle housed 10,000. Then the police cleared it. Now perhaps 600 migrants sleep rough in the dunes, trying to get to England. But there are those here seeking to persuade them that there are other options. We have uh, employed uh, French professionals and we employ different tools to show them um, that their options in France are probably a lot better than in the UK, that they don't need to risk their lives to try to get to the UK. Annie Gavriescu works for the charity Help Refugees. For example, they don't know that Afghans have a much higher chance of being accepted for asylum in France, but not in the UK. In terms of young people, we are really making a concerted effort to educate young people that their best option might be to stay in France. France really protects these children. Children may not know that. But many do not heed that message. Every night they gather for the free handouts, food and some clothing. But only big, no small. And as the crowd grows bigger, the police arrive. People are getting quite agitated now. A line of police has just turned up and they're moving towards the migrants who are here. And now the police have advanced. Some of them are holding pepper spray. And most of the migrants have now dispersed into the woods, though there are still some 
standing around a little distance from the police and the police searchlights are on them. The tactic is obvious. It's to make Calais as uninviting a place as possible. They have too many checks. They have scanned and they come in inside to lorry. One man from Afghanistan crouches forlornly by the side of the road. His depression reflects the partial success of the measures France and Britain have brought in. And the police tactics here, moving migrants on while they sleep, pepper-spraying sleeping bags, they're taking a toll. Police doesn't leave us to anywhere in sleep. They can use spray, they can't leave you to sleep. They can't leave you to put the tent. We just leave them sleeping under a tree. But he hasn't left Calais yet, and nor have hundreds of others. They represent a tiny proportion of the hundreds of thousands of migrants and refugees now on continental Europe. But for the British government, they are the problem. Matthew Price with that report ending up in Calais in northern France. And he brings this edition of News Hour to a close. From me, Tim Franks, and the rest of the team here in London, thanks very much for your company. Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.